Welcome to A Regenerative Future with Matt Powers. I'm your host, Matt Powers, and we're here in the newly made studio. Well, it's not completely made. <laughs> this part of it's made, but my son and I have been working with my in-laws and other friends to create this incredible space. And this is the part that's done, and my son and I have been working on music and all this fun stuff this summer. You know, in this lockdown, in this pandemic, um, I think that it's really good self-care and it's been a lot of fun and we've been learning a ton about electronics as we've been building guitars and building, you know, speaker cabinets and building pedals and it's been incredible fun. So that's why I'm here. Just want you to know and get some context. <laughs> if you're listening to this on the podcast and you can't see me, I'm in a converted garage and there's guitars on the wall behind me. There's amps everywhere. I think there's like 15 guitars. There's a full drum, uh, pearl drum kit. Uh, it is an incredible space. My son has adopted all my old music, uh, musical career gear and has added to it. And I find myself playing music more than I have since I was a professional musician and helping my son do things that I never could have imagined were possible outside of a, you know, an elite studio environment. And so I've just been having a lot of fun. So that's like me personally, what I've been working on, you know, in my home life, but in my work life here in this lockdown and in this um, very difficult time period for, I think everyone, I feel like everyone's kind of in like a mass PTSD um, state and we're all suffering. Relationships are just being strained to the breaking point and it's really painful um, just, to, just to be in the middle of this situation for everyone. And I, I've been feeling it just like everyone's feeling it. Um, I wrote a book about unstoppable enthusiasm and despite you know all these hard times, despite the problems that you know I physically have um, and despite the problems and obstacles we've had this year with all the different things that are going on and, and it's election year and you know it's just heavy heavy stuff I feel like I've been able to bounce back several times from tips dives stumbles and falls um, because of this project that I'm working on regenerative soil this new book and the next series of podcasts, YouTube videos, are going to be focused on interviews I did in the polishing up stages of writing Regenerative Soil. I recently released Regenerative Soil presentation from about the midway point of writing the book. And there are some incredible things in there, but it's incomplete. And so I, I really want to deep dive with the experts, with you, so that you can see the complexity, that, so that you can hear <laughs> the experts exclaim with frustration or delight or confusion, you know, and see that they, despite working decades, you know, writing hundreds of papers and 
they're in very similar circumstances, uh, as Michael Phillips once said to me on this podcast, that we're all in kindergarten when it comes to soil. And maybe some of us are not quite in kindergarten, um, but, but many of us are, and I certainly am. And um, it's an incredible new understanding and paradigm of soil that has arrived in the past few years only. And there's been rumblings here and there in academia, but now we've got the evidence. Now we have the actual numbers, we have the actual chemistry formulas, there's, there's no magic, there's no way. And the picture that it reveals is stunning and it also shows like some real confusion between organic and inorganic you know chemistry and and why that confusion exists because there's tensions obviously right there's tensions in the soil tensions in all ecosystems but if we just look from one perspective we only see that one side of it so it looks like a proclivity rather than a tension um, back and forth kind of thing between two different uh, oppositional forces in the soil, like the chemistry and the biology, for instance. And when we do that, we suddenly see how these things kind of create a balance through that tension, which makes sense. But unless, you know, you, you actually get to those, those confusions, those contradictions, those... You know, when you figure out that oxidation is not just, you know, gaining oxygen, gaining an oxygen, it's uh, losing electrons. It could be both, but it doesn't have to be. And so, and, and there's more, there's more, but, but I'd rather you start delving into this with me in a way that isn't like shooting holes in our understanding which is, I feel like a lot of experts do, and maybe I'm guilty of sometimes too, but I, I really feel like going through this logically, talking about why we think this way and, and, and what, you know, how do these things come to be um, thought of in this way, it's gonna be way more helpful in the end. So that's, that's, that's what my thought was with introducing not just the earlier conceptions of regenerative soil with the presentation on YouTube and the video, which is from a summit that I did this summer, but also bring in the highest level interviews that I did and let you guys see in to what's going on because it's really wild. It's really, really, really wild. Our world defies our imagination in some ways and, and, and peaks our imagination in many ways. And so I'm inviting you into the process side of writing this book, which is so close to being done. We're getting final reviews, final formatting in, and we're sending it to the printers within the week. And I'm recording this early in the week and I'm going to get this video out midweek, maybe tonight even, I don't know. But the point is, is that this is from earlier in writing the book as I'm talking to John about all these different ideas. And I, 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 I always try to take the position that I don't really understand it, explain it to me again, how does that look? because that's when you get 
the most honest answer. And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I frustrate the people I interview because they're like, well, I just said it. And I'm like, no, no, no I kind of want to see it, you know? Um, because so many of us are visual. And for me, I don't get it until I can make it into a picture. And, and that's a huge part of regenerative soil as well, is that I, I mapped visually the mineral cycles, uh, all the, the essential nutrient cycles in the soil I mapped. And so all the minerals and, and where they're traveling and everything hasn't been done for most things. And I made it visual because that's the only way I could understand it and also add to it and then inter find the other pieces that each new paper, which, because you know how these publications work. They're, you know, this little part they're looking at. Meanwhile, this is the cycle, right? Or maybe like, <laughs> this is the cycle. <laughs> but, but, but it was like really a huge process. And I think the longest process was mapping the actual um, nutrient cycles in, in, in nature. They're just so complex. And no one's really delved into that messiness. They looked at it from agriculture, from um, a ionic, chemical ag perspective. They've seen it from an ecological, perhaps a pollution uh, you know, uh, perspective. And to a degree, there's a, a lot of disparate studies of things down at the cellular rhizophagous um, and rhizospheric levels so that you're, you're seeing these things, but connecting, you know what's happening in like a rhizophagia cycle, which is the root actually literally eating bacteria and fungi in the soil that it attracts. Yes, they have that kind of agency. We've proven it now. Um, all the way uh, up to what we do, um, there's, there's a lot of connections that need to be covered, but we can do it and we can show it. So that's what I've been working on. Uh, I'm really incredibly, incredibly happy with where we are right now with it. There, I mean, <laughs> you'll see as you delve into this with me how when we get into the terminology of science at certain breaking points, it's like, wait, so that test means that and that, but when we put them together, that means that, but then when you think about this, that makes it only like conditional. You know what I mean? And so, and so we have to take all these things with grains of salt, but functionality, the ecology, the movement of things, rather than the values of exchange, rather than the actual like chemistry, mathematical, you know, molecular exchanges, um, we can actually trace these things. We can watch these things. And it's linking these two worlds that is very difficult that I've been working on so that we can connect these camps in a meaningful way so that we can move forward throughout all the sciences towards embracing regenerative soil. And the book really is designed so that it can be in ag programs in colleges, universities, Rutgers University professor James White recommends it to all students already. Um, and down into high school and advanced high school ag programs or advanced science electives. But it's written so gardeners can get it and flip to just the solutions and look at charts and understand what the solutions do in plain and clear language. And then they can also flip all the way to the beginning and learn how soils were created, 
what the parent materials are, the, the metaphors that will allow us to relate the minerals to the biology, to the organic matter, and to understand the complexity that's involved and also the simplicity of the solutions. Because there's a hierarchy to soil and uh, to actions uh, that we take within, within remediation and, and, and regeneration with the soil. There's a hierarchy. And so there's an order of actions. And, and yes, there, you can do some testing, but it's, it's not perfectly necessary. And after a certain point, um, even the best um, of people working on soil don't bother testing the soil. They test the plants. So we're an incredible new point of understanding and liberation with how we work with soils and how we change soils. Because even the best composts are just at the limit of getting close to the best plants in photosynthesis. So yeah, it's, it's really, really, really incredibly amazing what we've learned, what we're learning, the new adaptations that all of us are taking on and new ways of thinking that all of us are taking on, the new innovations from who I'll talk to today, John Kempf, to Elaine Ingham, to, I mean, you name it, people in soil right now are taking things to a new level. So today we're talking, as I said, to John Kemp, the agrarian agricultural expert who has a podcast, amazing courses, and new books that are coming out. And John is, man, John's a lot of things. John's like a Renaissance man. And today his talk is about, well, his, <laughs> John is an amazing guy, and today we talk about my book to a degree, but we talk about the, like basically, this talk I have with John was really what was needed for me to write the conclusion of my book and to nail down certain understandings because in the literature things are not clear. Um, and. I was able to really understand John's perspective after this interview, and I think you're going to really appreciate it. My understanding goes through several of these kind of um, questionings with different experts where I kind of rend the understandings that I have and then show the particular parts and try to eviscerate and get down to the actual source materials of ideas with these experts and then have them, you know, take them apart with me and put them back together because I, I, that's, that, that's how I think. And, and when we go through down to the source materials on up, it's like, where is this information coming from? You know, how is this proven? How does this relate to this, that, and the other? This is what they said. This is what this research says. Why do you think they got that, that answer? And so it's been absolutely incredible and, and very humbling and, um, and also, you know, like liberating in a way because when I do this and I say, you know, like, is this true? Uh, it's very disconcerting at times um, what you discover, but, but it also is liberating because we're, I'm, I'm always actively walking away from trying to always be right. 
because there's this, this tendency to try to always be right and be the expert when you study science. And you've probably seen this tendency in scientists. And I don't want to be like that. I want to be a learner. I want to be open-minded. And I want to be able to see the value in all the different disciplines, ideas, and innovations, and why they're valuable, so that I can improvise, borrow, tweak, and, and really just have a fluency of what's really going on. And so that's really what I've aimed to do. And uh, from the reviews, the earlier reviews, it sounds like that I you know, got, got, got there. Um, and I think you're going to really love it. That being said, it's not out yet. So you can't get it yet. But you can get a really good look at what's in it. I've done a lot of, of revealing. And a lot of people are like, you've given away so much information. I can't believe it. But um, I think it's important to show you know, why this is so exciting and wild. You can go to thepermaculturestudent.com and check out the book that we're talking about, the concepts that we're talking about are all in the book. The pictures that kind of flip, out, uh, flip by here and there, um, they're from the book as well. And, and as I said, you know, this is a conversation that involves a revision of my book at an earlier version. And so, there's all these different understandings that I'm working through and, and John and I are working through together in real time. And James White, the next interview that I do, it's the same exact thing. And Olivier Cousson, I don't know how much I can share of that. I've got to ask him about sections and, and get permissions. Um, but that was another one of those where uh, it was like being thrown into a tumble dryer of information and depth of of exceptions he has so many extreme climates that he's worked in that his perspective is very interesting i mean he wrote a book on sustainable agriculture in madagascar right years ago so you know he works for, for the cirad in france so he's got a very very dialed in perspective and it was it, it just been absolutely incredible going through all these different talks and I wanted to share them with you this is the first this is the amazing the one and only one of my favorite people in the world John Kemp here we go <laughs> I find so much hope in regenerative agriculture in regenerative soil in in these they're, they're scientific breakthroughs and I think right. a lot of people are currently talking about how we're stagnating and science and, and all these things are stagnating. And it's like, not over here. Over here, we're, it's all, like everything's so exciting and, and thrilling, actually. <laughs> well, it's, it's actually the case. Um, first of all, I agree with you. Second, I would say that there is a lot of old science that is being rediscovered and it's being identified um, how pieces fit into new understandings that have been known for decades, but we weren't sure exactly how they made sense. And third, there are some really fascinating um, research breakthroughs coming through outside of agriculture, like Jerry Pollack's work, that are going to give us a completely new understanding of soil and plant ecosystems.
I want to dive into to Pollock's work with you because, and I was going to write you this, but I wanted to just tell you, I was not very strong in science in high school. And so I was I didn't honor- go to high school, so. There we go. There we go. And all my real science understanding came from my own interactions. And then it came from intensive studying and experimentation as an adult. So I don't, with his work, I don't have like anything for it to refute. <laughs> and so for me, it's like I'm learning about the way the, you know, the cells work at that ionic level and at that, you know, the, the cell wall level. Like I never really, that never stuck in my ninth grade bio class. You know, like that's the time and- that I learned that. I guess wrongly. And this and this is yeah, you learned it wrongly, but now this is so much easier to learn because it's so elegant, it's so mm. simple, it makes so much sense. And it also explains a whole bunch of things that we've had no prior explanations for, like um the the mainstream explanations, present mainstream explanations, don't explain how a nutrient can get from a root tip on a redwood tree to 100 meters in the air in four seconds. Um, Osmotic regulation, osmotic pressure and water movement can't quantify, it can't account for that. We're talking about xylem transport, obviously, from the root system upward. And um, those, it's been years since I read this paper, and I don't remember the authors, but um, they were using radioactive tracers Right. Uh, radioactive labeled nutrients, uh, carbon and phosphorus and others, I think. Um, and they were injecting it into the trunk at uh, essentially at soil level and tracking it. And they found it in the furthest needle that they were tracking, which obviously wasn't the outermost on the plant, but they were finding it uh, 100 meters in the air in four seconds. My current understanding is that you have the xylem which is essentially a tube, and and Gerald Pollack describes how a tube develops this. Uh, if you have a an aquarium of water and you put a straw into it, it creates this layer of easy water on the interior of the straw, and it actually starts moving water through or moving a current of liquid through the center of the straw. So now imagine that occurring in the xylem, but the mechanism is amplified by several orders of magnitude because instead of having plastic, you have material, you have these essentially living cells which amplify the development of exclusion zone water even more. And so imagine that then uh, we know that this water in, in, the, in this, this uh, tube of water will have a very strong charge and you have nutrients being transported that have an opposing charge. And so it's essentially, it's like a maglev train. Yeah. It's like magnetic levitation where you're just zipping the nutrients right through the tube all the way up to the top at a very high speed. And that um, tube, that transport is pulsed. We have a heart that pulses. The heart is not a pump, but it is pumped. Uh, and, and our circulation system requires that pulse. And a plant also has a pulse that Philip Callahan identified in his research 40 years ago. 
in the ELF frequency range from 8 to 20 hertz. So these are this is in the region of the Schumann resonance and just slightly above that. So extremely long waves. But these waves we now know um, they don't they're, they're they're too large a wave in my understanding to interact directly with these small elements. Uh, so what is actually happening is we know that in association with this wave uh, we also have a magnetic field and this magnetic field influences the soil's paramagnetism and uh, it, that soil's paramagnetism influences the plant's antenna capacity and the plant's antenna capacity we know uh, in Gerald Pollack's research identified that um, the formation of EZ water in these tubes is amplified by infrared. So the interaction with this earth pulse from the Schumann resonance and these ELF frequencies um, basically makes the plant a very an antenna that is very attuned to a broad range of frequencies including infrared. So you now have a plant that has a pulse, it's attuned to infrared, and this infrared signal is amplifying the formation of easy water in the xylem, which is functioning as a magnetic levitation. And this is a very crude, oversimplified analogy, but this is kind of my understanding of the essence of it is that you have these opposing charges where it's essentially a moving elements through a plant is moving at the speed of a high-speed elevator. It just, phew, away it goes. Yeah, and then photosynthesis, they're, they're, it's a reductive action, so it's it's always constantly pushing that, so there's like a, a forward momentum towards that magnetic. And it's it always needs to balance the charges because the plant is always uh, transmitting a large number not it's transmitting a lot of light photons but it's also transmitting a lot of electrons into the soil environment and so it needs to balance that exchange of electrons out into the soil environment with an exchange of electrons upward mm -hmm. it's a combination of gerald pollack's work describing the transport of large molecules and the transport of bacterial cells through the plant's entire vascular tissue you combine that with uh, James White's work on rhizophagy and the absorption of entire of macromolecules and the absorption of bacterial cells directly from the soil profile. You combine that with Bargilia Rattaver's work in the 70s and others research over the last 50 years describing cellular absorption of large molecules and entire bacterial cells through the endocytosis process. And when you connect all those things together, you're essentially describing a pathway whereby plants are really absorbing their nutrition in the form of living organisms or the metabolites of those living organisms, transporting them through the plant's vascular tissue and incorporating them and absorbing and incorporating them directly into cells. And where each individual cell is either using those um, as pre-built components to build their own cell compounds or is um, breaking them apart and utilizing them as an energy source or as, as a uh, construction material. So it is a uh, completely different perspective on plant nutrition. And it's also the perspective that when you, when you look at nature and natural ecosystems, you, we have to ask the question, who is fertilizing the forest? Where are the soluble nitrogen compounds coming from in the, in the forest? And the answer is, 
They don't really exist or only in very tiny quantities. And yet we're producing very large trees with very large amounts of biomass. And in some cases, they're extremely efficient photosynthesizers, carbon sequestration. Um, they're, they're producing a lot of crop biomass that is the equivalent of some of our best crops. Um, we also have to ask the question, how is it that a tree can grow out of a bare rock face on a cliff where there is no soil, there has never been any soil. So how, where is that tree getting nutrition from? Where is it getting its nutrients from? And the mainstream model of agronomy or that which has been mainstream for the last eight or nine decades and, and has described um, agronomy from a chemistry perspective can't begin to describe those phenomena. And because of that, the soil testing metrics of that methodology are, 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 are totally being kind of disproven, right, at this time? Well, they are, uh, they are being proven to be largely irrelevant in a <laughs> biological system. Right. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting in the way that our use of of soil analysis has evolved over the years, but um, when when we, I actually think that the continued use of soil analysis by biological or regenerative growers has the potential for a negative effect in the terms of the way that it frames our thinking. Just the fact that we are pulling a chemistry analysis and conducting a chemistry analysis and looking at that chemistry-based report frames our thinking into a chemistry-based mindset, which is completely inaccurate and does not correspond to the way living systems actually work. And so this is, when you go back to the, our entire agronomic knowledge has been so, has framed around this chemistry knowledge so deeply that even for those of us who are now on a regenerative pathway, uh, we I constantly catch myself and have to remind myself to look at things in a different perspective and to consider the additional dimensions. So when I talk about additional dimensions, let's just unwrap this a little bit. Many growers, I think I can safely say almost all growers, are familiar with the pH chart that describes nutrient availability at different pHs. Well, that pH chart is totally completely 100% wrong. <laughs> and it's wrong for several reasons. Um, one, first reason, it's wrong because it is single dimensional and nutrient availability is not just one dimension. It's multi-dimensional. It has, uh, if we look at it, even from a very macro perspective, it has at least three dimensions and we can go into that and unwrap that a little bit. Um, but before I go there, the second reason it's wrong is because it is based on a liquid system of soluble nutrients, which doesn't exist in natural ecosystems. It doesn't exist in healthy soil with large levels of organic matter. So for both of those reasons and for other reasons, that pH chart is wrong. A third reason it's wrong is because um, the bulk soil pH has no bearing on the pH of the soil in the rhizosphere. We know that the pH right in close proximity to the root interface is going to be at a pH of three to four. 
um, depending on, of course, which crop species we're talking about and the degree of its microbial association. So what really is the value of measuring bulk soil pH? It doesn't connect to what is actually happening at the root interface. So those are several reasons for why this pH chart is wrong. But to get to the point that I started making of how this pH chart frames our thinking incorrectly, um, nutrient availability, when we think about availability, is very multidimensional. We could just in conversation probably come up with uh, at least a half a dozen or more different dimensions, but let's just Let's just focus on three easy pieces, three really big pieces. Uh, number one is that, um, as I described, or it is one-dimensional. And the second dimension that we should think about is not just pH, but also EH. So nutrient availability, and you describe this very well in your book. Uh, and Olivier Hussan has been describing nutrient availability in terms of the redox environment in the soil the combination of EH and pH. So immediately when you develop that chart, now you immediately have a two-dimensional chart. So now you have two dimensions instead of just one. But then you stop to think about that and you say, okay, these are two dimensions, but these two dimensions still have a problem in that they're still based on liquid chemistry solutions in the laboratory, not in real world living systems. And while we can perhaps infer some things from that, the what we just got done describing a few minutes ago in our conversation is that plants should be absorbing nutrients in the form of microbial metabolites. So in reality, nutrient availability is a function of biology, not chemistry. And biology completely changes those first two dimensions. So both the redox, uh, both EH and pH dimensions are completely under the control of biology. EH and pH don't determine biology. Biology determines EH and pH. So when we think about it from that perspective, all of a sudden, this pH chart is meaningless. And to some degree, the chemistry-based water-soluble redox charts are meaningless because they, they can give us some information and point us in the right direction, but they still frame our paradigm in the context of chemistry rather than thinking about it in the context of biology. And we do that because we understand biology so poorly. You think we're going to be able to understand biology well? Um, that's the, the the thing I've really come up against is we are in a diagnostic, a reactionary, an observation stage still. We're not quite in like a partnership fluency stage yet. Well, I believe that. <laughs> this is opening another can of worms. I'm happy to open cans of worms, just one after the next. There'll be worms all over the place pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just got done saying, uh, one way of paraphrasing what I'm trying, what I just tried to communicate is that you should not try to regulate chemistry with chemistry. Mm. You should try to determine nutrient availability with biology. And the same way, I believe that you should not try to improve biology with biology. In other words, you shouldn't try to improve biology exclusively by adding more microbial inoculants or by measuring bacterial to fungal ratios and having laboratory tests of microbial assays and um, adding compost. I think these are, again, they're all useful tools, but they frame our thinking in terms of 
of only in terms of biology. And so biology, I just said a moment ago that biology determines the chemistry, and that's true. The next question we should be asking is what determines the biology? We can influence it by adding these inoculants, but what really determines the biology is the biophysics of the ecosystem. And so if we want to have really robust microbial communities in our soils, then we should think about managing our soils from the perspective of um, what is their paramagnetic susceptibility? Right. What is their, what is their electron charge holding capacity? In redox terms, what is their boising, uh, poising capacity? And in pH terms, what is their buffering effect? Uh, mm. How much pH can they change? So when you start thinking about it from, and this of course gets into thinking about plants as an antenna and the whole ecosystem from an electrical and a magnetic perspective uh, and electron proton transfer potentials. So all of a sudden, now instead of desiring to have organic matter to provide a substrate for biology, we start thinking about organic matter and stable humic substances as electron charge batteries, their capacitors. Biochar is an electron capacitor. It can hold and store a tremendous amount of electrons. So it in increases our soil's poising effect. So all of a sudden, when we start thinking about developing our soils from a biophysics perspective, increasing all these parameters that I've just spoken about, or I should say managing well all these parameters that I've just spoken about, now you create the environment in which biological communities are going to thrive in ways that we can hardly imagine because we haven't observed and experienced them very often, if ever. And so that is just the extension. The key to managing chemistry well in soils is not to manage chemistry, but to manage biology. The key to managing biology well in soils is not by managing biology, but by managing our soil and our ecosystems biophysical parameters. So this is the next generation. This is the next level where much of agriculture and many people in regenerative agriculture still need to go. I'm so glad that um, these concepts are in my book. <laughs> uh, I, I was really relieved to, to be able to go through your courses and not just um, be checked off, you know, like, oh, I did this right, but to get so much more depth and clarity in all these concepts. You've got such a great grasp on all this stuff. Um, and if people don't know, um, John has incredible courses that are on his website. Um, the website's regenerativeagriculture. There's the Regen Ag Academy, which has our in-depth courses, but I would refer people to uh, my own website, johnkemp.com, which is kind of the, it's the central hub for everything that I'm doing. The book, the courses, the blog, the webinars, the podcast, it's kind of all there in one spot. Yeah. So when did this, I mean, when did this happen? Um, I know we've talked about it before uh, you were working on this, you kept finding these, these problems, but was there like at a certain point where you were just like, I am now enthusiastically charged. Like I get energy from studying this because that's what I get. Um, I, I, this is exciting because not only is it more simple and more compelling, 
um, a paradigm of understanding of the soil. But it's like we can actually do something about about you know the way our soils are because so many of the soils people feel like oh well it's this way but you provide these these bridges over like oh your soils are totally oxidized and you put nitrates in there i mean you put any form of uh, nitrogen it becomes nitrates within hours you know it's high eh you know all this stuff but you can apply reduced forms of this and that um to to really help plants it just Really fabulous, really, really, really awesome problem solving. And when did that begin? <laughs> well, it's it's been a journey. It's been a process. And uh, like every journey, it has lots of twists and curves and turns and backtracking and forward movement. And uh, <laughs> it, uh, it's a really squiggly path. So I can't, I don't know if I can point to a single moment in time where it all began. I, I really... Um, I've enjoyed learning about agronomy and plant nutrition and have been studying it. It's obviously a passion of mine for a decade and a half now, maybe even a little bit longer than that. Um, but what has, what you know, what is really so exciting for me is the work that we do with farmers, with growers in the field. Um, we don't keep exact track, but we're now at several million acres that we're working with all across, mostly here in North America, some internationally as well, but mostly here in North America. And um, we, we're having this experience right now with cotton, which is a new crop for us as of last year, 2019 growing season. So we know nothing about cotton. <laughs> we started collecting some sap analysis samples, but we do understand plant physiology fairly well. And so in the first year, we, we feel confident making some recommendations that some of the things they're doing are pretty screwed up. But uh, so we made a lot of really radical recommendations that were very far outside of the mainstream. And um, in the region that we were working in Lubbock, Texas region last year, it was, it was a disaster from a climate perspective. So there were some very severe weather events that uh, ended up the, the yield the yield across the region ended up being about 15 to 20 percent of normal our farmers were about 70 to 80 percent of normal so they were pretty excited so we scaled significantly in 2020 and now this year we're talking about and some of the we're now in three states or maybe four states working on cotton and we're talking about 40 to 50 percent yield increases on a scale of tens of thousands of acres we're cutting pesticide applications by 80 to 90%. We're cutting fertilizer applications by 40 to 60%. And they're getting increased yields with fewer pesticides. And cotton is one of the most intensely sprayed and fertilized crops that is out there. So that, to me, when those things start happening, that's what's really exciting. That's what's really exhilarating. And it's also, uh, when I think back about our pathway and the journey of, of all the things that we have learned so far, uh, you learn the most when things don't work. So it's when you start putting on nutrient applications and chemistry applications and you expect to see a certain response, but things didn't work. That was what really led us to a deeper understanding of redox because we had thought we could apply trace minerals. We had thought that we could put on a foliar application of manganese sulfate onto a crop or onto the soil and get a response. And when we started using SAP analysis, we discovered that we, in fact, weren't getting a response. So 
it's when things haven't worked that has really um, led us to learning the most. But of course, if you want to learn from those experiences, you then have to really lean into them and you have to dig pretty deeply to understand why something didn't work. So something that I think really captures this whole thing really, really well is the fact that you you almost don't want to do soil amendments for some things. Like it's it's not worth our time. It's they're not as effective. Um, you, you're you've discovered that that some foliar amendments are superior uh, to soil amendments, um, and it's absolutely incredible. Um, how did that come to be? Well. Um, I alluded to that in my previous comments. I'll tell you the right, right, story right. of how it came to be, and then I'll, I'll tell you where we are at today. So the story really of understanding redox deeply and understanding um, how some of these trace mineral applications were ineffective started in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, where we have a large distributor and we're working with, I don't know exact numbers, but at that point in time, it was over 400 farms that we were working with, mostly in high-value fruit and vegetable crops, but also in uh, dairy farms and, and uh, crop farms and so forth. And so in this region, we have calcareous limestone-based soils that have typically pHs ranging from 7.5 to 8. Um, we have more livestock than they know what to do with, uh, than they know what to do with the manure. So soils have typically have calcium levels on a um, on these chemistry tests that mislead us in the neighborhood of, uh, they're all greater than 75%, usually 80 to 90% base saturation calcium. Um, they have uh, phosphorus levels in the range of 400 to 600 parts per million, so extremely high phosphorus levels, extremely high potassium levels, 300 to 500 parts per million. And many of these crops, um, depending on which crop and genetics, of course, but many crops were deficient in all three of these macronutrients, both calcium and phosphorus and, and uh, potassium, because they were at so ex excessive levels in the soil profile. And in addition, because they had these calcareous soils with high pHs, and as we now also understand that were very oxidized, um, they also had severe manganese deficiencies. So at this moment in time, this is about 2009 and 10. Um, and into the 2011, um, our tool to monitor plant performance, uh, nutrient absorption, was dry matter-based tissue analysis. So we're collecting tissue samples every couple of weeks through the growing season, and we see that the manganese levels are chronically deficient. So on our tomato growers, in particular, this is where we really got the experience because tomatoes are a high-value crop. We're collecting lots of data, and um, we would consistently see that manganese levels were low and that potassium levels were low. And so we were foliar feeding manganese sulfate at a rate of about three to six ounces of manganese sulfate per acre per week in foliar applications. And then we were also fertigating as much as three to four gallons of liquid potassium per week. And in 2011, we started testing plant sap analysis. It's kind of remarkable that it's been nine years already, but um, we started testing plant sap analysis, and the sap analysis gave us a very different report from the tissue analysis. It showed that these plants were still deficient in manganese, even though we had been applying the manganese sulfate. You could put on a manganese sulfate foliar, 
And on the tissue analysis, the levels would change, but on the manganese, on the sap analysis, the needle would not move at all. So we were trying to understand what was happening, what was going on. That led to us learning about manganese only being available to the plant in the reduced form, not in the oxidized form. And when you have manganese sulfate, it's in the reduced form in the bag, it's in the reduced form in the spray tank, but when you spray it onto the leaf surface and it gets exposed to oxygen and the droplet dries out, then it oxidizes and the plant doesn't absorb it. So we actually conducted experiments in this area. The conclusion of the story is that um, as a result of this experience, we tried to identify mangan manganese products that were reduced and chelated so that they would stay reduced. And we were only able to find a couple and they had other challenges from uh, chemistry perspectives that we were concerned about. So we eventually ended up creating our own, uh, which is our rebound line of trace minerals. And all of a sudden we were able to put on very small amounts of manganese as a foliar application and the needle moved very quickly on the sap analysis. The levels jumped dramatically. But here was the, the other interesting part was that as manganese levels went up on the sap analysis, all of a sudden, the plants became very efficient at absorbing potassium. Um, and we learned from that experience that manganese actually can, can manage potassium absorption within the plant. So we went from applying three gallons per acre per week of liquid potassium to applying no potassium, which was as it should have been because these soils were really high in potash in the first place. So that we then continued this experiment to say, okay, um, we don't, in the intent of developing a truly regenerative ecosystem in the long term, it's not our desire or our goal to be constantly spoon feeding manganese as a foliar. We want it to become available from the soil profile. So how can we manage that? How can we have that come about? And the key of course, is that many soils, most soils here in North America um, have in the neighborhood of 200 to 900 pounds per acre of manganese in the top six inches we're not going to suffer a manganese shortage ever in most soils, like with the exception of some sandy soils and muck soils and so forth. But in most soils, we're not ever going to experience manganese deficiency as long as we can release it, as long as the plants can absorb it. We conducted a series of experiments on different soils around the country, but particularly focused in this region of Lancaster County, where we desired to create a very reduced environment in the soil that would convert manganese to the reduced form that plants could absorb and maintain it in the reduced form. So we combined manganese sulfate with biochar, with humic substances, with a humified compost, and with some combination of all of the above, a different combinations of all of the above, to try to maintain manganese in the soil in the reduced form. And we experimented with different application rates all the way up to 400 pounds of manganese sulfate per acre, which is like 10 times the highest ever recommended application rate. And the interesting part was that we could get manganese levels on the soil test to go up, but the manganese levels on the sap analysis did not change. There was no movement. And the conclusion was uh, and we've now verified this in experiences since then, is that it is a complete, total, utter waste of money and time and energy and resources to apply manganese to an oxidized soil. 
forget it. You might get a soil test response. You will not get a crop response because whatever manganese you apply to that bulk soil environment is rapidly going to be converted to the oxidized state. And so the, in terms of developing regenerative soil ecosystems, our intent and our strategy needs to be to convert those soils and, and improve that soil biology to the point where the soil now is reducing and it has a microbial community that can convert the manganese that is native in the soil profile. And once that happens, you can now stop spoon feeding manganese. You don't need it anymore. And on some soils, this can happen in a year or two. Some soils in desert environments, it might take five or six years, but it can happen. And uh, the key point is, it's not a question of uh, foliar applications versus soil amendments of which is, it's not a question of which is better or which is more efficient. This is one of the very few cases I believe where it's mostly black and white. It's a case of one works, the other doesn't. Wow. You know, I knew the first, the first half of that story with the calcareous so soils. And I'm so glad you told it because that story, and I know it's from, you know, inside one of your courses, but that story was like the story where it was like, oh, <laughs> because it like debunks both the mineral testing and just like the pure foliar spray, just, oh, foliar is good. And it's like, no, sophistication, sophistication. <laughs> yeah. you, you, have to, you have to think of both of these types of applications as being tools in a toolbox. They are appropriate for some minerals in some contexts, and they're not appropriate for other minerals in other contexts. It's, it's context dependent, and it's, um, it's very difficult in... Um, I think truly professional agronomists who really understand soil ecology and agro agroecology will very seldom make statements that things are black and white, universally bad or universally good. And um, I made that comment just now in the context of manganese, but again, it deserves a qualifier. And the qualifier is in oxidized soils. So if you have soils that are not oxidized, but that are in the reducing end of the spectrum, then it does make sense to apply manganese to the soil and not as a foliar. And it's something you should only need to do once or a couple of times and then not need to continue it into the future. So when we think about, uh, I mentioned paramagnetism. We know that when we have very paramagnetic soils, we have plants that are much stronger antennas. They are much more efficient photosynthesizers. They produce more sugars and transmit more sugars to the root system to feed more soil biology. Malcolm Beck in... Um, what was the title of Malcolm Beck's book? Um, it's published by Acres USA, and the title is escaping me for the moment, which is annoying. That isn't supposed to happen. Um, <laughs> but he described an experience where he moved to Texas, and they had these very arid desert soils that were uh, – there was no functional organic matter to speak of. And he planted – he, he built this soil up into pyramidal-shaped raised beds. Um, when I say pyramidal-shaped, as in um, not, not a four-square, but there was a long row that was hilled up to a peak. So there, he developed all these hills. And then he applied compost in the valleys between the hills. And he believed he had this incredible garden 
in this desert environment that wasn't supposed to happen based on soil quality and climate. I mean, the soil quality was atrocious and the climate was really challenging. And they had these incredibly high yields of fruit and vegetables the first year right up from the get-go. And his first assumption was that it was a result of the compost. But then the following year, he expanded his garden and didn't make the raised beds, didn't make the hills, just put the compost onto the flat soil and did not get an equivalent response. Uh, again, the area that had the hills significantly outperformed the flat area. A few years went by and he came to learn that when he raised the soil into hills, it significantly increased the oxygen flow into those hills and it increased that soil's, just the, the, the being in the shape of a pyramidal shape as a hill, increased the paramagnetism by about 600 points. So all of a sudden you had this soil that was very paramagnetic and you had this incredible microbial population that now thrived in these hills. So it wasn't just the compost by itself, it was the combination of the compost plus the shape of the hill. The reason that I bring this up is because that's an aspect of changing the biophysics of the environment. We change the paramagnetism, and when we change the paramagnetism, all of a sudden the microbial community completely changed. It wasn't the compost by itself. It was the combination of the compost plus changing the biophysics ecosystem. And, and as you <laughs> mentioned earlier, we're not going to be able to, it's going to be beyond our, like where we're heading is beyond what we've seen and what we know. So it's almost like we can't, we're on an exploration. We can't really envision where we're heading with all this stuff because we, none of us in living memory have seen what this can be. Well, I think there are individuals who have seen instances of what this can be, but I think collectively, you're right, we don't know. Um, Carrie Reams, 40, uh, now 50, 60 years ago, he described, he said that plants don't have an endocrine system. Their growth and their development is not limited by time. Um, at least, uh, yeah, it's not limited by time. It will, well, we, we can get into the... If, uh, plant physiology and growth patterns if we want to. But essentially, uh, if we can develop a coherent ecosystem where the plant is coherent with the soil environment, there is no limit to the speed at which energy can flow into the plant. Plants don't grow from nutrients. They don't grow from nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. They grow from energy that we could call electron and proton energy, uh, we could call it electromagnetic energy. I mean, we're, we're just talking, we're, we're talking about the exact same things using different terminology and viewed through a different lens. But so plants grow from energy, not from nutrients, uh, but really from the energy contained within those nutrients. And the transfer of that energy is not limited by time. It is limited only by coherence. Kerry Reams predicted that the day would come when we would be able to grow plants from seed to harvest in a matter of days or weeks rather than months. And we have observed this and other agronomists have observed this on, in some instances 
where we've been able to limit the time from seeding to harvest of some crops by as much as 40%. So that's a pretty significant gain. And I think and it is those same crops where that, which grow that rapidly that also are resistant to diseases and insects. I mean, they, they are completely, totally resistant and they are extremely vibrantly healthy and extremely high yielding. This is what the future looks like. And that future will come about, uh, we already know that it's not going to come about from us managing chemistry. I also believe um, that we can get part of the way there by managing biology, but ultimately what this looks like is that instead of having soil tests to measure chemistry and instead of having soil tests to measure microbial profiles, we will be looking at our soils and we will be measuring paramagnetism. We will be measuring uh, redox poising and electron holding capacity, if you will. We will be measuring electrical conductivity. We will be measuring uh, pH, not from a chemistry perspective, but as a proton channeling and proton holding capacity perspective. So we might be looking at some of these similar measurements, but from a completely, from a biophysics point of view rather than from a chemistry point of view. And uh, when we start looking at plants as an as antennas and the electromagnetic environment, then all of a sudden uh, it becomes entirely plausible to grow plants from seed to harvest in a matter of days or weeks rather than months or years. Days. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's just incredible, okay. and and it feels like we can we can kind of glimpse at that um, with Alaska, where it's like five weeks of just sun and suddenly like that's the whole season. It's like, oh, we, we, we're done. The things all grew in three weeks. And it's- yeah, Okay, so Alaska is a great example. So yes, we do have continuous sunlight and we do course, have continual right. electron flow into that soil. So that is a contributing factor, but there's another contributing factor that we tend to not think about. That's the convergence of all the magnetic lines. We have significant <sighs> magnetic flow through the soil the closer you get to the North Pole. Wow, that's incredible, and that's probably why those uh, th those plants that were like, "Well, we don't know how these are growing here," are persisting because they're really able to um, have that that microbial community of support right there, just at the rhizosphere. <laughs> okay, so just just for the fun of stretching your boundaries, I'm going to say that maybe the reason they grow so well is not because they get microbial support right out of the rhizosphere. Maybe it's because they get energy from electron flow from magnetic currents and the rhizosphere has nothing to do with it. Right. So I have friends who talk to me about this. So there's like, um, like bioceramic beads giving off photons, right? There's people are trying to do these things where they're charging either ceramics or biochar with energy so when they put it or 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 they're they're reducing it you know significantly by you know adding electrons with like em or something like that effective which i thought was incredible olivia Husson uh mentioned that em can lower plants 30 millivolts in only hours mm -hmm. so we could be loading these things man it's just fascinating when you start getting into it well, oh, man. so continuing continuing down the rabbit hole mm -hmm. of uh, of uh, electron transport or uh, not electron but uh, photon 
transmission in the soil, we know that plants as antennas are actually picking up photons of light and transmitting them out into the soil environment uh, through the root system, which is interesting because we have bacteria in the soil that have, um, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? They have light receptors. So the question and light receptors showing up in their DNA and in, in their molecules. So why would a bacteria that's 18 inches into the soil uh, benefit from having a light receptor? It's because they can actually intercept photons of light that are coming from the root system, which is interesting when you think about it, there are some strains of bacteria that we cannot successfully culture in the lab for unknown reasons. And possibly one of those reasons is that they are dependent on photons of light being uh, absorbing photons of light from root systems. That's a, a guess and a hypothesis. I don't know that to be the case. But the next step, uh, coming back to paramagnetism, we know uh, based on Fritz Albert Popp's work on biophotonics in Germany that um, igneous rocks, particularly paramagnetic igneous rocks, transmit photons of light into their environment. They are actually, the rock is creating and transmitting light. This is incredible. So how does this, how does this tie into infrared? Because these are, <laughs> these are photons, right? They're light, but which, which spectrum are they? They're in the white light spectrum that we can like physically see if we were down there at that level seeing these things. But then there's yeah. also the infrared, which is the bandwidth that we hardly ever look at. I mean, well, scientifically, because we can't look at it. <laughs> well, the, the infrared, um, essentially, you could think of it as being a heat energy signature that is being produced from microbial populations. So if you have, um, let's say, photon-emitting light, and again, this biophysics environment that facilitates microbial populations, then it is reasonable to expect. We know that soils that have very abundant microbial populations have a very strong infrared signature. And so it is reasonable to expect that um, when you have these optimal biophysical conditions, you will also have optimal microbial communities, which will speed up or which will uh, not speed up, but uh, will increase the density and the saturation of the infrared radiation in the field coming from the soil environment. And that would passively, or just along that, you know, not necessarily passively, but just along that bandwidth, be able to transmit energy directly into a cell. Because infrared, right, don't, don't our cells absorb, uh, living cells absorb infrared light as energy. And that's why we can... Our, our cells do, and plants do as well. I mean, it's not widely known, but plants can actually... Uh, have photon receptors that function in the infrared spectrum. They can actually photosynthesize in the infrared range. Um, and so, and then of course, there is also um, uh, the name of a researcher in Georgia 40 or 50 years ago. Um, I want to say Gaston Nysens, but that is not correct. Uh, the name escapes me right now. Um, but there was research conducted where they grew plants in shoeboxes that were completely dark. And they lined the boxes with aluminum foil and grounded them. And then they put a copper screen on the shoebox lid 
and con connected that screen by a wire to a copper panel that was outdoors. And they used copper panels of various sizes. And um, so when they had these seedlings growing in a shoebox in the dark with a copper panel that was not connected or a copper screen that was not connected to an outdoors copper panel, the seedlings were white and had no chlorophyll as you would expect from a seedling grown in the dark. When they were connected to a copper panel that was the same size as the shoebox, the plants were green and photosynthesizing even though there was no exposure to direct sunlight. Oh my but it gets, even wild, it gets even wilder. When they connected these copper screen to a copper panel that was significantly larger than in size and surface area than the screen, they actually scorched the plants. And so this was transmission through yards of copper wire. There was no heat transmission that was happening here. Holy cow. That's that is amazing. <laughs> oh. So what else? <laughs> oh man. I think I've I think I've opened enough cans of worms for one day. <laughs> yeah, so I really feel like the lesson of our conversation today, and even the conversation before that we were having about how idealized soils are not found on soil tests. It's very difficult to use a soil test to arrive at currently at, um, at these regenerative soils we're talking about. But there is a paramagnetic test. Um, do, do you use that, the, uh, the Phil Callahan ion meter? Or no, no, it's not the ion meter. That's the CARDI. Um, but the uh, yeah, paramagnetic I, meter? Yeah. Um, so I had one of those instruments and uh, used it quite extensively for a year or two. And then uh, it ended up sitting on a shelf. And I eventually sold it because uh, I wasn't getting much use from it. And um, it's, it's a useful tool. I'm not discounting that. But the reason we didn't, that I didn't continue using it is because uh, there is an element perhaps similar to organic matter where you have a soil that it, it kind of it, it is what it is. You can't change it too dramatically, but you can improve it over time based on how you manage it. So if you have a paramagnetic uh, rock, bedrock base, you might have a soil paramagnetism of 400 or 600. And some sandy soils might be at zero or 40. And there's not a whole lot that you can do to change that in the short term. But in the long term, what, what you can do, I alluded to some things with Malcolm Beck, oxygen is a very uh, paramagnetic gas. So you flocculate your soil, you increase soil organic matter and soil uh, flocculation, you increase gas exchange, the oxygen content goes up, your soil paramagnetism goes up. As organic matter goes up, paramagnetism goes up. So um, we, I didn't make it a specific item of focus because I discovered that many of the things that we were doing already to build organic matter and to build resilient systems would tend to have the effect of improving paramagnetism. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. I, I recommend in my book um, "Rock Dust" and then biochar that we put iron sulfate on as we're making it. 
Yep. That's, that's a new one to me. Yep. I thought that was incredible. Um, and so I recommend, I, I've recommended that, but um, that's very interesting that you kind of have what you have. And I feel like the emphasis that, that you have about how like plants are this essential component, like essential component in transforming soils, I think is, is really incredibly powerful too. Um, because it's <laughs> there, like, as you say, the antenna. What I've learned in my own learning journey and pathway is that there are always new levels of complexity and new levels of simplicity to be discovered. So as our circle of knowledge grows, the boundary that touches the things we don't know also continues to grow and expand. And however, what is what I take a lot of comfort in is that once we truly understand these systems and how they function, they are really, they're not simplistic, but they are simple to understand rather than complex. And uh, as an illustration of, of my frustration with complexity, when I was learning about all these interactions between living organisms from a biophysics perspective, I badly wanted to learn physics. And so as I had done with all the other topics up to that point, I went to the library and um, I actually got a, a college grad book, a physics textbook that was used to teach physics in the university at the university level at the time. And I laboriously worked my way through that book, reading and trying to understand. And I spent, that was my hardest read ever. I spent <laughs> the better part of a month going through that book from cover to cover every evening. And when I got done, I got to the very last page in the book. And the last page in the book said that... This is the one that was, has been hardest read for me. And this, this research. <laughs> yeah. Um, I got to the last page in the book and there was this one paragraph and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but it said, everything that you have learned about physics so far in this book, we now know to be incorrect, but we don't know how to teach it any differently. So this is the way that we are still teaching it. That oh. book made a dent in the wall. <laughs> That book made a dent in the wall, and it's it was so complex, mm -hmm. and it's because it was known to be incorrect. And so similarly, when you consider Gerald Pollack's work on mm. the water dynamics within plants and within living organisms, and how he has completely rewritten the understanding of cell physiology, cellular physiology was also comparatively complex. It's, and yeah, <laughs> I'll just keep recommending books. You'll keep getting them and reading them. <laughs> um, Gerald Pollack's work on cell physiology makes cell physiology so elegant and so simple and so easy to understand. And I am persuaded that every time when we arrive at the true understanding of how natural systems truly function, it becomes very simple rather than very complex.
I, I, I tend to agree. Um, and that's how I feel like I've been able to, you know, stay in, you know, stay and comprehend and, and keep up. <laughs> Part of our task as teachers and instructors is to bring people along from where they are. Right. And to give them a place of understanding with in some type of context that they can understand right now. And so adding the chemistry section and the chemistry interactions and knowing those pieces is important because um, the, it's never going to become completely irrelevant. Um, it should not be the central theme, but if we have soils in the Midwest that are deficient in selenium, you're not going to correct that deficiency by adding great biology and having good paramagnetism. There comes a point in time where you need to measure it and need, you need to know that you need to apply additional selenium. Um, so it's not that it's irrelevant or ever will be irrelevant, but it needs to shift from being a primary focus to being a secondary or a tertiary focus. Mm -hmm. 